You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi there, and welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a PPI podcast. My name is Veronica Goodman, and I'm PPI's Director of Social Policy. For this segment of Talk Policy, I sat down and spoke with Dr. Chandra Childers, Study Director at the Institute for Women's Policy Research. She's an expert on social stratification and social and economic inequality by race and sex. Chandra examines issues related to women and girls of color and job quality. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and enjoy the episode. Hi, Chandra. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about equity and inclusiveness in apprenticeships and job training programs. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. My pleasure. So just to start to give listeners uh, a little bit of background, what is an apprenticeship when we're talking about it? Okay, so I would like to actually focus specifically on registered apprenticeships because they provide a structured experience for trainees or workers. They are focused on mastering, ensuring that the worker or the trainee, however we want to refer to them, that they actually master a specific set of skills that the employer is actually needing in his workforce. And they are, these apprenticeships, they're paid from day one. So you're being paid to learn the skills that you need. These are, they get regular pay raises as they master the work, as they move forward. Um, They receive mentoring. So these are an excellent opportunity to prepare workers for moving into, especially jobs that are hard to fill. It allows them to earn a living wage so that they're not, going into student debt, um, trying to get a college degree, yet they put out some really high quality workers. And I think that apprenticeships are really valuable um, for those reasons, also because they tend to earn, workers who go through apprenticeships tend to earn more. So according to apprenticeships.gov, over 90% of graduates of apprenticeships have earnings, have average earnings of $70,000 annually, which is, a, you know, that's a pretty good living to make. Um, that's after they've graduated, but during their program, they're paid from the very beginning. And they cover a wide, a wide range of industries. So while most apprenticeships are, for example, in the skilled construction trades, we do find that they, we, we have them in everywhere from hospitality, transportation, manufacturing, healthcare, business. So there are a range of areas, although the vast majority are in skilled construction trades. That's really helpful. Thank you. And, and I think you, you sort of highlighted that they're usually in the trades, but uh, they, they actually exist in, in a lot of industries. Could you please share a little bit about some of the historical context on the the racial and gender makeup of apprenticeships um, and and these programs just to frame the conversation, you know, what, maybe what percentages are female, what are um, from communities of color. And I know from reading your papers that that's, you know, changing in certain programs and regions too, which is good. 
Um, sure. So we know that women make up almost half of the workforce. Women are, you know, like 47% of all workers. Yet it has only been in the last few years that women have actually made up more than 10% of all apprenticeships. So when we look between 2014 and 2020, I believe, the number of women in apprenticeships Again, only reaching now to about 14%, but that's a 200% increase over just 2014. So we are seeing a lot of growth. We also see that Black and Latina women in particular are also really underrepresented. But again, we are also beginning to see improvements in those numbers. So um, for Hispanic women, the number of Hispanic women between 2016 and 2019 increased by, again, almost 100%. Their numbers almost doubled. And for Black women, the increase was about almost 50%. So we are seeing growth. We are beginning to see some changes. Yet they, these groups are still really underrepresented um, in the trades. And I think this is it's really important um, to think about the inclusion of members of these groups because it's, it has a number of impacts. One by excluding whether it's women, whether it's you know, black, Hispanic workers, men are women. One of the things that you're continuing to do is you're denying these large segments of the population access to earning a living wage, being able to provide for their families. But you're also depriving, employers are depriving themselves of access to a group of, to really large pools of talent. So they're actually losing out. And one of the things we know is that a lot of the, um, in the skilled construction trades in particular, a lot of these workers are older. We did a study looking in New Orleans in particular, and there we found that over a quarter of construction workers were 50 or older. These are people who are going to retire and they're already struggling to find an adequate number of workers. So, you know, that history of bias and exclusion for women and for workers of color that is beginning to change, but we do need to see that change um, at a much faster rate. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, uh, I mean, those are huge increases percentage-wise, but still it's um, disappointing to see how low uh, the participation is. So I, I guess building off of that, how do you think we can best address these inequities, you know, to, to sort of strengthen access for these workers? Um, to be able to be more inclusive and to ensure that we get more workers into these apprenticeships, there's a number of things that can be done. You know, some of them are as simple as going ahead and enforcing, you know, EEO regulations around making sure that, that you aren't, that things aren't biased, that people get equal access. But I think that there are other factors too. For example, we could start apprenticeships in high school. You know, we have lost a lot of the like shop classes and so forth in high school. But by beginning to having schools begin to work with businesses, you could begin to go ahead and get those apprenticeship processes started. But I think another important piece of that is is helping employers to understand how they benefit from taking on apprenticeships. I think apprenticeships can be seen as costly for employers. I think some employers worry about training workers and then having them leave to go work for some other company. But I think that one of the things we know is that 
that for a good apprenticeship that's preparing workers, it's preparing them with exactly the skills that that employer needs and that those apprenticeships can definitely pay for themselves throughout the time of the apprenticeship. So I think that's um, one way to begin to um, increase the access for some of these communities. But I mean, I think we could also make other investments. Um, and I'll probably talk about this a little later, but we know that there are a lot of, not a lot, there are some women only pre-apprenticeship programs that really um, are beginning to bring women into and preparing them to go into apprenticeships. You know, those are in other areas where we could really invest that could increase access to apprenticeships. That's great. And I guess as a follow-up question, since you alluded to it, um, are there any programs out there that you think are getting particularly good results or that um, you're interested in and uh, researching further? There's a, a few programs. And of course, I can't, there's a couple that I will highlight here. I think one that is really doing, um, having a really great amount of success is Morehouse, which is located in Mississippi. And they're not only providing that training for women to prepare them, but they're also providing women with one of the most important supports that they'll need, and that's childcare. And so, you know, we're seeing, again, not a lot, but a few, a few of these apprenticeship, pre-apprenticeship programs, they are either themselves providing um, access to childcare for women or they're matching women, women up with resources. Because that's one, that's a major barrier for women who are moms, especially with small children, whether it's in the apprenticeship itself or um, once they finish working in the trades, the hours, again, and I'm focused on construction trades, that's where a lot of the apprenticeships are, that's where the majority of them are, um, and that's also the work that we've been doing, but because of the hours that they work, um, because of the demands, I mean, going through an apprenticeship, that is a full-time job, you know, it's combining, um, you know, classroom training with on-the-job training, but you are doing a lot of intensive work, and so those programs that provide access to childcare and other supports, including transportation, because again, you're on job sites that are not necessarily close to your home. They may be constantly moving. Um, so I think those are important. But in some of the research that we did with women, some of the um, programs that women were really the most excited about, they you know, couldn't talk enough about these programs that introduced them. Like they had no idea about the trade. So like Chicago Women in the Trades, um, non-traditional employment for women in New York, you've got these types of women pre-apprenticeship programs that are really providing you know, women with information, with training, preparing them for moving into those um, apprenticeships. And so those I think are a really great opportunity to again, increase the representation of women and women of color in particular. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned sort of this information barrier and, and how these groups are, are working to address those because I've seen uh, a lot of surveys and, and polling around how a lot of workers are interested in these opportunities but don't know exactly how to access them or, or tap into them in their communities. Um, so that seems like a really key piece. And so, so President Biden and the White House included proposals in the American Jobs Plan to, to increase gender and, and racial equity in, in workforce development programs. 
what do you think some of the top priorities should be in, in achieving that? And, and how can we make sure that there's accountability measures in place to, to make sure we're getting the outcomes that we're shooting for? No, I think an accountability, that right there, I think is, you know, um, enforcing again, you know, EEO, having companies set goals and annually, you know, reset those goals, not only for hiring and bringing women, Black, Latina women on, you know, not only hiring, but also retention. So once that, you know, really focusing on, um, have reporting around that, holding them accountable on those numbers. And that retention piece is a really big piece because when you can retain the women that you've hired, then that points to having addressed a lot of the other issues that come up as barriers um, that women face um, especially in the in the trades when they're working, um, you know, sexual harassment issues like that that make it difficult for women when they, especially because quite often they are the only of or one of one or two women who may be on a job site. So there are already a lot of issues that they're dealing with. So I think that is a really really important piece of that. It is you know setting those goals. It is, you know, they'll have that reporting in place and making sure that, you know, there are realistic, you know, we know that we're not going to have 50-50 women, you know, and so, and that's not the goal, but to make sure that women are um, included, that there is no bias, that they are not facing discrimination, that they are not being excluded from those positions. I think that's exactly right. And I think looking through some of your publications, one of the things I especially appreciated was that there were research interviews done with women who are actually in these positions and, and on these work sites. And it seems like from the ones that were in roles that were surrounded with other women, there was sort of a support structure, sort of a virtuous cycle as there were more women included, then it became a better work environment for, for everybody. So I, I think that this can only build uh, on its success as we, we get more um, women and, and workers of color included. I, I really, on that point, I don't think that that can be overemphasized. That was, you know, again, the sense of isolation. And we, you know, we highlight a number of consequences of that, of being like the only woman on a job site. You know, it means that, you know, quite often they don't have equipment that's designed for them, that safety, you know, safety equipment may not fit. They may not have a bathroom on site if they're the only woman, you know, so there were those issues, but also just that sense of isolation in the interviews, you know, the way they talked about when they went to the first Women Build Nations conference where they saw other women and they heard other people who had had their same experience and they would form groups just so, even if they couldn't have it on their job site, just so that they, because only other women who you know work in that field could really understand that experience. So I think that cannot be overemphasized. Yeah, agreed. And, and you might be, I don't know if you can hear it on the audio, but there's a, a house being built in a neighbor's yard and- um, oh. <laughs> So the, the construction noises are just for, for uh, ambiance. And um, it, it's actually funny because uh, there are two women on that crew and I've noticed them. And so it's uh, just all coming full circle here in my office. Um, but I, I, uh, I think one of the um, points that you made earlier, I wanted to dig into that a little bit more about how women in, in trades and, and apprenticeships tend to earn more 
than in many fields that are that are dominated by um, female labor. Um, so if you could please take a moment to just discuss like some of the wage differences and, and what might account for those. Yeah, so that's another, um, again, apprenticeships generally overall, over all apprenticeships, um, as I said, they report that over 90% of them are working after they complete their apprentice and they're earning an average of $70,000 a year. However, the vast majority of those apprenticeships are in the skilled trades. And so that's kind of the comparison I usually make is, you know, you can take, for example, um, and I will give you two examples. One, you can think of um, jobs that don't require anything beyond a high school education. So here I think about a waitress, you know, you make waiters, waitresses compared with construction laborers. Now, neither of these jobs require any advanced, you know, training, yet what we see is that the average earnings um, for waiters and waitresses is $11.42 per hour. And we compare that with construction laborers who, are, who earn $18.22 per hour. So we're looking at you know, a serious, you know, what is that? A pretty large wage increase just for being in what is a male dominated field. And then if we look at, for example, um, positions that require greater levels of skill. So for example, here we can compare librarians um, with plumbers, both of these. Um, so for the librarian position, and I look librarian and media, media collection specialist, that's a position that requires a master's degree. Well, if we look at plumbers, pipe fitters, and steam fitters, I love these, these job titles. Um, if you look at those occupations, they also require about a five-year apprenticeship. So we're talking about similar levels of training that's required. However, for the librarian and media specialist, you're paying large amounts of money to get the master's degree to go into that field. And they um, have earnings of $29.24 per hour. Whereas plumbers, pipe fitters, and steam fitters are paid $27 per hour. Now that's, you know, it's about $2 less an hour. However, for the plumber and pipe fitter, they are being paid in their apprenticeship from day one on the job, and they're not going into student loan debt, and they have the potential for earnings to increase over the course of their career. So those are two examples where we can see that apprenticeships, they really do provide, and this is one of the reasons we really are pushing to increase access for women and women, you know, Black and Latino women in particular, is because these are occupations, you're not going into so much student debt, um, yet the pay is really good, um, you have really great benefits. And it's something that you don't find in a lot of, you know, a lot of the jobs where women are concentrated. You know, I picked out librarians and media collection that requires a master's degree, but for a lot of, um, of, of female dominated occupations, you know, they're not requiring that much education, but the pay is terrible and they don't have a lot of benefits. Yeah, I know. I know that uh, childcare and and early education workers have really been in the news. As um, I mean, in some of those positions, actually do require 
a higher level of education and it doesn't really quite match up with then where the wages are uh, after uh, getting those degrees or credentials. Yeah, I think like elementary school teachers and even middle school teachers, I think also they're paid, you know, the hourly wage is lower than what a plumber makes, yet they are required to have at least a bachelor's degree. So you do see that with, you know, there's a number of, of occupations you can pull out. Um, and that was something else also that we saw in our interviews is that several of the women we spoke with, they had bachelor's degrees that they thought they needed in order to be successful, but then they learned about the trades and they preferred the trades over their professional jobs. So they left what they were doing to move into the trades um, and had better pay and benefits. That's great. Yeah, I'd be interested to, to hear about what's sort of next for you and your research and, and some of these areas. Yes, yeah, so um, we've done the reports looking you know, at, at women coming out of apprenticeship programs. We've done, um, some work in New Orleans in particular, looking at opportunities um, to, you know, ways that we can help increase women's access um, to the trades. And so that's some ongoing work. We're still there, you know, we put out the report, but we're still there building on that, trying to um, make connections and build up opportunities with training institutions, with employers um, to be able to do some of that work. And the next um, step in this, again, that will continue, but we also will start working, looking into manufacturing and you know, looking to increase women's access and representation in manufacturing occupations. So you know, there are you know, a number of good paying jobs, of, again, in New Orleans, jobs at the port, um, transportation, where you know women are really underrepresented, but they're jobs that pay well. And so we really just want to keep building on trying to increase opportunities um, for women to move into these well-paying jobs. And also, you know, a big part of that is it will reduce the occupational sex segregation. And that is the largest contributor to the gender wage gap closing that gender wage gap, getting women into some of these occupations can really help to reduce poverty rates for not just women, but children, um, raise GDP, you know, so it's got good benefits all around. So those are kind of some of the next steps that we're looking at here. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today and talk more about your research. I'm looking forward to seeing how it evolves and uh, we'll be sure to link to uh, some of your publications at the end of this for readers that want to take a closer look. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.